Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. And so the book of Revelation, interestingly enough, didn't have a whole lot of popularity or even consideration only a few centuries ago. Even the early church reformers did not give it much attention. And many in the church at that time considered it a closed book. There are even pastors still today who say, I'm not going to teach through this book. I don't say that as a way to pat myself on the back for doing so, but to just simply say that people have resisted this letter. But in the, in the 19th century and, and since then, certainly in recent decades, this book has been given more and more attention. Why? Well, because as, as Schofield would, would posit, because its meaning becomes clearer with the unfolding of world events that set the stage for the book itself. That's another way of saying we are very much living in these times, I believe. And so, let's read together here tonight just from the first eight verses of the chapter and we'll continue then to consider its introduction and, and we'll dig in a little bit here tonight just into the basics of the, the who and the what and where and why. And so if you would just read along with me here beginning in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which, which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks once again this evening for our time together. It's been a blessing already, Lord, as we've had the chance to fellowship and to worship you in prayer and in song. And our desire, Lord, is to continue in our worship as we look to your word and this incredibly powerful portion of your word that, yes, Lord, at at times can be difficult to grasp, Lord, but a, but a word that you desire for us to understand nonetheless. And so here tonight we begin the, the journey, Lord, of considering it and seeking you and the work of your Spirit such that we could apply it to our lives, that we could have understanding ourselves, Lord, that we could live, Lord, in light of the things that we learn. And so, Father, we ask that uh, 
as we know you are already here, Lord, that you would continue to lead us in our time together, lead us to understanding of your word, Lord. Once more, help us to make application. Bless our time together, Lord, we pray, and we pray also that it would be pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we see that because of what is going on in the world today, um, people are increasingly interested in prophecy, in the events of the end of the age. And more and more scholars have shared and are sharing their perspectives and understanding of Revelation. And, and, and if I say this once, I'll say it a hundred times throughout our study of this book, there are many interpretations of the letter, many schools of thought, many perspectives uh, that have been taken as they look at this particular book, and I'll certainly do my best to unpack those as we make our way through it, such that we too would not simply have an understanding of what we here at Calvary Chapel believe as it pertains to Revelation, but that we would have a good understanding of all of the views of Revelation, knowing this as well, that we can, as the body of Christ, have some different perspectives of Revelation, and that is okay, provided we all maintain consistency on one important thing, and that's that Jesus is coming back. Amen? Amen. And so that will be the, the major theme that we should take from Revelation, is that Jesus is coming back. But certainly I will share uh, what I what my perspective is and what broadly the, Cal the Calvary Chapel perspective is on this book as we make our way through it. And so the very interest then in this book, the growing interest in this book, I believe, is a sign of the times, not only for the same reason that I think Schofield uh, considered that truth, that, that as events unfold that are in line with much of what we see in Revelation, that it begins to, to lend itself to understanding, but even specifically in Daniel, and in Daniel chapter 12, if you're taking notes, you can just note Daniel 12, verses 4 through 10. He received a vision from God of the events of the end times. And in this vision, it became clear that he did not understand it. It was difficult for him. And, and truly, if it, if it was a vision of, of the end times as, as, as we see it here in Revelation, because we, we don't have full insight into what Daniel saw, well, what that then means is that Daniel was seeing something that was, that was 20 centuries into the future. I mean, think for a moment of, of the things that we have around us today, the technology that we know, the, the vehicles we drive, the, the, the screens that are on our walls. I mean, imagine someone coming from such a great distance in the past and seeing elements of this and, and trying to understand it, trying to comprehend it. Furthermore, though in uh, in the history of the world, we can think back on, in, on incredible atrocities that have occurred. What we need to understand is that nothing that's happened in the history of the world to this point in terms of the evil of humanity will compare to the tribulation that is endured during the time of, of, of revelation and of what's written. And, and so that too is, is naturally going to be very troubling to someone. And it certainly was to Daniel. And so Daniel doesn't understand it. He's troubled by it. And in verse 4 of Daniel 12, it says, But you, Daniel, 
shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And so the instruction to Daniel when he had a vision from the Lord was to close the book, seal it. This is not for now. And he continues on a few verses further in verses 8 through 10. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And so here we see that the, the time was not suitable for Daniel. It was not the time of the end. It was not the time where individuals could understand. But as God's plan of salvation unfolds, as we make our way into the end times, there will be those who begin to understand as these events begin to be fulfilled. Now immediately here in Daniel 12, immediately following these verses in verse 11, there are specifics mentioned of what I believe and many others agree are, is the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. And so the vision that Daniel has uh, right following this is it says, but the wise shall understand. It goes into a statement related to the taking away of sacrifices and the abomination of desolation setting himself up in the temple. And so I mention that simply to say, I'm not suggesting here that these verses from Daniel uh, contextually are, 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 are for right now, in this moment. But I do believe that we are, are, are entering into that time. And, uh, and so while they've not yet necessarily found their fulfillment, certainly verse 11 has not yet found its fulfillment, it would certainly seem we're getting closer and closer and the interest then in seemingly prophetic world events would suggest that we are living in these times. Now, Revelation then is a prophetic book. It's a book of prophecy. Yes, it's, it's, it's recorded by John, uh, the Apostle John. He writes down the things that he sees, and, and he delivers this letter to seven churches throughout Asia Minor. But this book is prophetic in nature, and we have some prophecy in other books in the New Testament, uh, little bits here and there, certainly within the Gospels. Uh, Matthew 24, for example, as Jesus speaks about the end times, we have various prophecy within the epistles, certainly in First and Second Thessalonians, as well as in First and Second Peter. But Revelation falls under the category of prophecy. It's a prophetic book as opposed to narrative or historical like some of the other New Testament books. And this prophetic book is especially significant because it includes events which shall soon take place, as we read there in the passage. Now we're going to consider what that means in a moment, but you could say this. It concerns of events that will affect you or your family members, or your kids, or your grandchildren. This is not just a story. This is insight into the future. Moreover, this book is the only book in the Bible that specifically says that it will be a blessing to you when you read it, hear it, and keep it. Verse 3, as we read, it says, Blessed is he who reads, 
And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So we could even say tonight that I am blessed for reading it. You're blessed for hearing it. As long as, of course, we keep it. That is where we receive it. We allow it to pierce our hearts and our minds. And so it truly is an unfortunate thing that this book has been neglected by so many. Unlike the vision of Daniel, this book is open. It's open. In Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 10, John is commanded not to seal it, but rather to share it. And we're blessed for studying it. And this book is intended, furthermore, to be revelation. An unveiling of things is what the word literally means. If you're familiar with the word apocalypse, it's another way to translate revelation, which means an unveiling It's as if we were to uh, have built something very special here at the facility that we wanted to to unveil to you guys. And so we we put a big sheet over it. And we said, guys, I can't wait for you to see this. And when we gather everybody together, finally we just pull the sheet off and we say, ta-da, this is is that book. John gets to go, ta-da, here's what's coming. And for some people it was, oh no. And for others... Praise God. It's the ending of the book. I know I get made, of, made fun of often for this, but yes, I often Google the end of a movie. Oh, boo. It's biblical, guys. Why do I want to go through that drama? Why do I want to sit down and watch a movie and, and become anxious and worried? Will they make it? Will they not? What's going to happen? I like this guy. Is he going to die? Man, I Google the ending. I can watch the rest of that movie in perfect peace. And the kids sometimes will ask, Dad, do you think this is going to happen? I'm like, hmm. And they're like, you Googled it, didn't you? (laughs) Maybe. But I'm as cool as a cucumber. That's the way we're called to be. There's no reason for us as believers today to say, how will it end? What's going to happen? One variation to those we love, will they make it? And so the book not only gives us insight into the end, but compels us to do something about it. And so it is unfortunate that many have turned away from this book. And, and, and isn't it interesting here? It's, it, it's a bookend of the Bible. Two books, Genesis, Revelation. Might we consider for a moment which two books of the Bible are most contested, most refuted, the books that give us our understanding of our Creator and us as His creation, the very book that instills a sense of value and purpose, a book that, yes, deals with the fact that all of us now are tainted by sin and in need of a Savior. But no, we're just mistakes. A glob of mud that turned into something. Right? No need for a Savior. No, no absolute morality or sense of right and wrong. And no, no real purpose. So just do whatever you want. And so the world is sought to remove that. And then of Revelation, the story of how it ends. Of a separation of those who chose to follow Jesus and those who rejected Him promise of eternity in his presence to be with him forever yet conveniently these two books 
in many circles, even amongst those who call themselves believers, have sought to say, eh, I don't know about those. A little fishy, isn't it? From creation, and think about this. Think about these two books. From creation in Genesis 1 to new creation in Revelation 22. Creation to new creation. The difference between the two, Genesis, sin and death enter in. In Revelation, sin meets its end. And eternal life is realized. In Genesis, Satan begins his rule on earth. In Revelation, Jesus rules from his forever throne as Satan is cast into a lake of fire. We should want to know all about this book. And so good job for being here tonight. And however limited it may be, it's what we know about our future. It's where we're going. Shouldn't we want to know about that? Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. And, and here, Paul is speaking of events surrounding the, the last days, and specifically the resurrection of believers unto life. But he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. You should know about these things. Warren Wearsby said of, three, of the three types of writing that we see in the New Testament, he says in the Gospel, the message is believe. In the Epistles, the message is be sure. And in Revelation, the message is be ready. Our study of Revelation should help ensure that we are ready. That we're found faithful at His coming. Living for Him until He comes. Charles Ryrie writes, even though this book is largely about the future, knowledge of it should affect our living in the present. And some of the critics of the view that, that I take on the events of Revelation, which, again, I will expound upon many times throughout our study, suggest that such a, a view is a risk, that, that because of such a view, which would be a pre-tribulation rapture view of the church, a literal millennial reign, uh, some people feel that with such a view that we're uh, not going to live the way that we should. That we'll just kind of have an escapist mentality, not really give ourselves to some of the things that might be required if the church is going to be around a, a little bit longer. But I, I don't think that's true. I suppose the risk could be there for some. Certainly Paul addressed that in his letter to the church in Thessalonica. But for us, if we rightly understand the book, it should prompt right living now. It should prompt faithful living until such time as he says, come. Knowing further what's at stake. And so while on one hand we see the glorious hope that we have in the return of Jesus, in His reign and the defeat of Satan, we rightly understand what's at stake. We see that it does not come. Such blessing does not come without great cost without great loss, without great suffering. And so the details of the book should motivate us to living and teaching the way of the Lord. So we considered even in this past Sunday from Genesis 18, verse 19, and, and God's uh, reminder of that covenant to Abraham to say you're to teach the way of the Lord, to teach righteousness and justice. And so we are to be about that continually as we see in verses 1-8, through eight, we are a kingdom of priests. And as such, we're representatives of Him until such time as He calls us home. We're to live for Him to reach the world. 
And so then, of the details that we'll read here, as I've started to just touch ever so briefly, even on this idea of a, of a rapture or a millennial reign, and, 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 and so what of the things that we'll read here tonight? Remember, this is introduction. If you're familiar with our first go-around with Revelation, some of these things may sound like repeat. Um, they were, of course, some of my own notes from the first go-around, and you can only say it was written in 95 or 96 A.D., so many ways, right? So we'll, we'll delve into some of those things here tonight. Um, so the details, are they, are they literal? Many different interpretations of Revelation exist, as I've mentioned already. Four in particular are kind of the predominant. First would be the non-literal or allegorical approach. And so this would regard the book as one large allegory. This primarily, this belief primarily stemmed from, from really the view of the millennial reign, that it was not a literal millennial reign. And so uh, because of that, it then required that mainly the view of the entire book became somewhat symbolic. And so that would be the non-literal or allegorical. So again, looking at it and saying, this is largely allegory. Much of what we read in this book means something else. The other would be, um, and, and some pronounce this the, the preterist, or I'm more comfortable saying preterist, rolls off my tongue better, uh, the preterist, that's P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T, approach, which basically means past. And the preterist re- uh, approach means that, or believes that Revelation also is somewhat symbolic, less of a, uh, of a true allegory, but, but some symbol- sim- symbolism, and then a good bit of history with some elements then of eventual triumph, uh, specifically in the last two chapters. So breaking that down a little bit more, they view the events, this is the preterist view, they view the events as having already happened. Specifically chapters 5 through 11 are the church's victory over Judaism. Chapters 12 through 19 are then the church's victory over Rome. And then chapters 20 through 22 are the church's eventual glory, which finds its culmination in the end of time. Number three would be the historical approach. The historical approach holds to a symbolic uh, presentation of the total church history, and really that the book of Revelation is something that is kind of uh, unfolding throughout time. And then there would be the futuristic literal approach, um, number four, the futuristic literal approach. And I would say that this is the view that is supported by most conservative premillennial literal interpretations. Some of you, if you've studied Revelation a lot, the words that I just said, you're like, yep, that clicks. And some of you are like, wait, say that again. Um, and that's okay. We're going to do that a lot um, throughout this study Again, pre-millennial would, millennial would be the thousand-year reign of Christ. Pre-millennial that Jesus comes back in His glorious second coming before that thousand-year reign. Uh, we're not going to get a ton into the millennium here tonight. That comes specifically in chapter 19, but we'll, we'll deal with it a good bit between now and then. Um, and so, pre-millennial, <clears throat> Jesus coming back before the millennial reign, and literal interpretation, meaning we're going to look at the book of Revelation and largely say what it says is what it means. Um, This is the view that I would take as well. 
Calvary Chapel broadly views Revelation as futuristic, it's prophetic, and it is literal, with chapters 1 through 3 being somewhat historic. Right here in chapter 1, we know this already happened. This is the account of John beginning to receive the revelation. So chapters 1 through 3, somewhat historic, and then 4 and beyond having a more prophetic or future fulfillment focus. Specifically, chapters 4 through 19 would encompass the time of the tribulation preceding the second coming of Christ, which we then see in chapter 19, as I mentioned, followed then by the millennial kingdom in 20, with 21 and 22 being the final events accompanying and following that major event. Okay? So. And again, guys, we're, we're just delving into this tonight here. So, um, you know, if, if you're newer to a study of Revelation, we're going to cover a lot of this. And there will be, uh, uh, I'll have some handouts made up as well as we start to go through some of the timelines. And, and, and we'll do the comparisons as well. So I'm not just going to go, here's the, here's the timeline that I think is right. Um, we're going to look at all of them, okay? And so, and that's one of the things, guys, I hope that as we go through this, um, one of the things that has bothered me recently, especially as I've looked at some different perspectives, is there tends to be, and I won't even name it because that would just be wrong, um, but there tends to be folks who align with certain perspectives, and the way that they sort of speak to said perspective is with a, a sense of arrogance, a sense of like, I've figured this out. And if only everybody else would be as smart as me, and that just, I, I, don't, I don't like that. <laughs> that just rubs me the wrong way. I can stand before you here tonight and say, I believe strongly in, in my view of Revelation and the end times events. But I could be wrong. Right? I absolutely could be wrong. And, and, it, and, it, and it doesn't sh- shake my faith to say that. Now, I, I really, not only do I really believe it, but I also really want <laughs> Jesus to take me out, to take his church out before the tribulation. And, and I think that it's, it's pretty justifiable when I look at Scripture to say, yeah, I think this is where this is going. But he might not. Because there's people that I love and respect that say, no, it's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. And I go, okay. Man, I hope it doesn't. But they're pretty firm in their view. And there's some that are like, oh, come on. It's going to happen after the tribulation. I, a little harder to get on board with that. I'm kind of, I, like, I can sort of see where the mid, mid-trip guy's at, but the, the post, really? Okay, but all right. Hey, you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. He's coming back. He's, all right, we're going to be together forever. Okay, right? And so we, we can do this. This is okay. And so I hope that through our time that I can share those views without coming across as arrogant or saying, hey, everybody else is wrong. Because um, I just, I don't think that's fair. And, I th- and uh, it's, it's certainly... Well, it's arrogant because nobody fully knows. But we study and we seek it out and we pursue it and, and, and it's fun to do so and, it, and I think it pleases the Lord. And so I would just say that here this evening. So um, now, here I've said literal, right? And so that means that essentially I believe that the terms within the book should be understood in their ordinary meaning, that they are what they are, unless there's contrary evidence available to tell us otherwise. 
And, and we'll consider some of that because throughout this study, John many, many times is going to say things like, this was like this. It was as this. And then there's other times where he's going to say, this is what it was. And so that would be just one example of when we would go and we would look at it and we would say, well, it seems like he's saying, it's not really this, but it's like this. <laughs> because he's trying to give us insight into what he saw. And, and to me, this is the safest interpretation of any portion of Scripture, not just Revelation, that we should look at God's Word and we should treat it literally. That's the, that's the safest way to approach His Word. And, and, and unless there is other evidence, such an interpretation will always align. And we needn't then run the, the risk of applying any of our own opinions to the text, but just to say we're going to take it as it is unless the text is leading us elsewhere. And, and, and a lot of the views, other views of Revelation, oftentimes require you to make things symbolic that shouldn't necessarily be symbolic in order to support the end view. And then what it does is it also then creates inconsistencies throughout Scripture where some will say, well, this should be taken literally, but in order to achieve this view, this can't be taken literally. And, and you find yourself then on a fairly slippery slope. And so um, the most literal view, I believe, and I think most people agree with this in terms of if we're, if we're just simply saying, hey, if you take a literal view, that it results in a rapture of the church, a time of tribulation, a second coming, a millennial reign, a new heaven and a new earth. Um, and so, of course, people differ in terms of, well, this isn't literal, this is symbolic, and then you start to get your variations from there. And so the number of different interpretations to the book often stem from the relative difficulty in understanding it, due in, in much part to the symbolism that we do see in the book, and there's a, there's a good deal of it. Now, while a little literal interpretation has already been, uh, you know, I've already sought to establish that, as I've also mentioned, it doesn't mean that there's not symbolism. But I do think that John gives us insight into that. And, for example, one of the more specific ones that, that often gets brought up is, is he'll say things related to, uh, he'll suggest that they're, um, they were like stars. But it seems that these stars are functioning differently than stars that we're familiar with in our day and age. And when we think to ourselves, are these like, are these like moving stars? Are these what, what are these types of stars doing? And 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 so, what we have to understand is that John does use some symbolism. He does say it was like this, and it shouldn't be a, a point of contention for us because there's some of you sitting here tonight that that, that you like a show that's all about dancing with stars. And I would say, can you dance with stars? Can you really do that? And well, we but 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 you know what we mean, right? Well, no, I don't know what you mean. What do you? How do you dance with a star? Well, there are these people; they're famous, and right, you get the point. So we can't hold him to this to the same standard or to a different standard of what we would hold ourselves in terms of our understanding. And um, and we'll see him say very plainly throughout that uh, certain things are a, a a sign. We'll read and. Uh, we, we read there in verse 1 the, 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 the word, um, uh, rather, that, um, that, that Jesus, right, in the, in the beginning, uh, he is the word, right? And then, and then throughout Jesus' life, as the word becomes flesh, um, he begins to show his glory through uh, signs 
and miracles and wonders, right? And so there's this pattern throughout Scripture of doing uh, things that were uh, beyond us and beyond our understanding. Um, And even for Jesus, oftentimes the things that he was doing carried with it a deeper spiritual meaning. He did things that others couldn't do, and then they asked him about it, and he said, well, this is what it was about, right? And so we're going to deal with a lot of this, um, and we've got to be comfortable kind of working our way through it, right? And so of that, and I know I've got to start to chop away at a couple of other things here. Um, I'll come back to this one next week. That's a little, uh, that part's a little wooden, a little technical. We'll dive into that when we're fresh. Millennialism, same. So let's do this. <coughs> so John the Apostle. Somebody already set their alarm for me. <laughs> John the Apostle. He's the writer. Right? It's 95 or 96 AD. You saw that in the video there. He's close to 100 years old. He's in exile on the island of Patmos. The Holy Spirit through John is, gives us, it gives us the, the Gospel of John, the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Content-wise, you know, we often talk about Paul and all that Paul wrote in the New Testament, but when you, when you start to stack the chapters up, I mean, John's, John's got, some, uh, he's got some real estate in the New Testament. Uh, he's writing the book, as I said, around uh, 95, 96 AD under the rule of, of Roman Emperor Titus Flavian Domitian. John, as I mentioned, he's been exiled. And, and think of the things that he's seen, right? He's 100 years old now, goes back to his early time in ministry with Jesus. Um, remember, John, so John and his brother, they're the ones, his, their mom, she comes up to Jesus. She starts looking for a favor for boys, right? You're going to give him a special place. I mean, here, he, I mean, so many things that he's seen and experienced, the maturity that's developed. John's the one that kind of squeezes in there like, hey, me and Peter, we're running to the tomb. I beat him. Like, this is that guy, right? But now he's out on an island. He's in exile. And all of his friends are dead. They're all, they're all with Jesus. And I can't help but think that John wants to be there too so badly. And the amazing thing about John is is that they tried to kill him multiple times. Multiple times they tried to take his life and he wouldn't die. And i got to think John is thinking, God, what is up? I'm ready. But God says, no, you're not. i got, I got one more thing for you. And so here, and, and he's not alone on the island. There's, there's other videos too. Um, and uh, some of you may have seen them. They make their way into Christmas movies and different things like this, like biblical um, they often show John alone. I don't think he was probably alone. I mean, this was an, an island where you were exiled to, so other prisoners would go there. They would work in the mines. Maybe he had his own little setup. I don't know, but um, there's other people probably on the island. And uh, he's suffering. And he's suffering because he says, he says, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. This is what got him there. In verse 9, he's going to say, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I, and I read about this, and, and Ian prays for the missionaries tonight, and, and I'm thoughtful of Hebrews 13.3, remember those who are in prison as if you were in prison with them. Remember those who are in chains as if you were chained with them depending on your translation. right? There are people who are suffering because they've been bold in their witness for Christ. And this man just wants to go home. 
And so persecution in the church at this point had long since begun. John's the only remaining apostle. I, I, I mentioned that they'd attempted to kill him. The other martyrs had met absolutely unspeakable deaths. They were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ also. These men who spent time with Jesus were martyred for their faith. Men who had resigned themselves to, to their own lives for the cause of Christ. Nero, I mentioned Nero two weeks ago in our consideration of the, the beginning there of Romans 13. Nero had come to the scene. He was on the throne. It was recorded that Nero at nine years old was complicit in killing his own. I mentioned just a few of the things. Doing further research, he, he's, he's, it's said that he's complicit in killing his own father. Um, that, that he killed a friend. I mentioned his, his first wife, but then apparently his second wife and his third wife. Uh, at age 19, he killed his mother. Attributed to Nero are the deaths of upwards of 3 million Christians during his reign. The atrocities of Nero are certainly beyond what anything we've seen in our lifetime, or, or at least that we've, we've been privy to. And then from Nero comes Titus Vespasian. He comes to the scene. He's, he's less oppressive to the, towards the church, but he destroys Jerusalem in 70 AD. His last reign, um, his reign, excuse me, lasts 10 years. He's replaced then with, with Domitian, who's even worse than Nero. And we talk about Nero a lot because of the stories, the other stories that were, were, were too gruesome, perhaps for a Sunday morning with the various audience, but... Um, he talks of, of dousing them in oil and lighting their bodies on fire to illuminate his gardens. But here comes a, an emperor that's even worse in his oppression of the church. He expected everyone to bow before him, to declare him God, to call him Lord. He was the first to declare actual war on Christianity. He believed that it threatened the glory of the emperors. And John's sharing the gospel. John's saying, all my friends are gone. These guys keep getting worse and worse and worse. But I'm not stopping I'm not stopping. And so he wanted to kill John for his refusal to bow before him. And so he decided, I'm going to boil you in a pot of oil. And I'm going to do it in the middle of the Colosseum as people cheer. And so he puts him in a, in a big vat of oil and they light it on fire. And John's tied up, sitting in what looks like a hot tub. And it just gets hotter and hotter. The people in the Colosseum are so depraved that they're just cheering it on, waiting for who knows what. Maybe they've witnessed it before, or maybe they're like, I don't know what's going to happen. And John starts to, starts to pray, and as it gets hotter and hotter, he starts to sing, and he's singing hymns. And as he sings louder and louder and louder, the crowd gets quieter and quieter and quieter, and they begin to be so moved by this display of bravery, courage, and demission. He says, get him out of here. Get him out. Sends him to the Isle of Patmos. And it's there that he sees Jesus. He's going to be standing on the island seeking the Lord. He says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. And these are the kind of things that we're going to... So here he says, as of a trumpet. It wasn't a trumpet that was talking to him in this situation. He says, this sounds, this sounds different. This, this is a booming voice. I don't, I don't exactly understand how we're... There's an, I'm not going to be able to give you any more insight into this. Some of you maybe have your own insight. We're, we're not going to know yet what this voice sounds like. He says it was like a trumpet. It's behind him. But I got to think he starts to go, but I, I know that voice. He hears a voice saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, verse 11. The first and the last. 
And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And he knew these churches. He knew them well at this point. One of them he even pastored. And he's got to be thinking, okay, I'm ready to go home. I want to be done with this. He's got to be in pain. I mean, we talk about our bodies, you know, Wasted. The guy's a hundred years old, and he's been. They've attempted to kill him multiple times, and he was recently boiled, and now he's out working a mine. He'd be thinking, "Lord, I'm tired." But he hears a voice behind him, a voice that gives him a mission, a voice that effectively says, "You're not done yet." And he turns to see the voice that spoke with him, and he saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, there was one, like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. He turns around and he sees Jesus and he sees Jesus in a way that he's never really seen Jesus before because the, the fact of the matter is up until this point the Jesus that Jesus that, that, that they had seen was the humble, the Jesus that had taken on flesh. They saw him in his humility. They saw him in his humanity. And for moments, just moments here and there, as he worked a miracle, as he seemingly saw into their hearts and and knew their thoughts, little bits of his glory would become visible. And for the few that were able to go up into that mount of transfiguration and for only a moment begin to witness his glory on display, that was it. And, even of the, and, and, and for the rest of the world, for the then known world and the, and the, and the, and the people who, who at that time rejected him, the last thing they saw was a bloodied man beaten and dead on a cross. There's only but a few, really, that saw him in his resurrected state before he ascended into heaven. And here's this man, 100 years old, and he's out on an island, and he's just... <laughs> He's so faithful, but I can't help but think he's just, he's ready. And he turns around and he sees him. And he falls to his face. And this glorified, risen Lord, who, who is, is so different than how he remembered him, yet so much the same, comes and puts his hand on his shoulder and says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm alive. And I've got more for you to do. And so this man, once again, with every reason at this point to give up, grabs his quill, and he's ready to write. And we have it right here. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Do you believe that? We're called to believe it, and to respond to it, and to live it out.
I didn't cover three quarters of this stuff. But we, should the Lord tarry in his return, then we'll dive back into it next week. And guys, it, the, whole, the whole word, all of his word, we see Jesus in every book. But this one here, and forgive me if this is offensive, but if you've got the right Bible, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book's about him. It comes from God the Father to Jesus to give to John. And so it's from him, and it's for him, and it's to his glory. The whole thing's about him. Every bit of this is about Jesus, the revealing, the unveiling of Jesus. And so this is our chance to between now and when he ushers us into glory, to see him in glory, and to just begin to get a, a glimpse of what's, of what's to come. And so we'll, we'll continue our consideration of, of, of the book and the foundation of the book next week. And we'll dive, we'll, we'll, we'll jump back into even verses one through eight there. Some of the stuff that I, I skipped over there that we definitely need to consider. But for now, maybe let's, let's seek the Lord over the next week in prayer that, Lord, we're, we're going on a journey that for many in the church is not well traveled but Lord you say that I'm going to be blessed to hear it and to read it and to keep it and Lord I want that I want that blessing let's pray Father we uh, we love you so much Lord Lord I'm so grateful for our time together here tonight I'm grateful for every bit of time that we have together Lord increasingly so perhaps so much more as we see the day approaching and so Lord I pray that you would continue to bless our time together bless this fellowship Lord, as we consider your word, as we come together, Lord, regularly to consider this this book, Lord, we desire the blessing that you've promised. And what grace, Lord, that we can do so. To say, Lord, bless us. But you want to, and you do. And Lord, we want to know more of you. We want to know more of what you have in store for us. And we want to understand, Lord, what it means for how we're to live our lives so that we could be found faithful at your coming. So Lord, if you might, in your kindness, Give us glimpses of your glory by your spirit, Lord, as we consider your word. May it serve to change our hearts, Lord, and transform our minds. May it draw us closer together as the body of Christ. May it give us more boldness in our witness. May we be people, Lord, who not for our glory but for yours, that when we go out amongst, Lord, those who are lost, they'd say those people are different, that they'd come to know that those are people who've spent time with Jesus. Lord, may that be true of each of us. Lord, we pray, we love you, and we praise you and thank you. The blessing of our time together, we pray, Lord, it's been pleasing to you. Go before each of these here tonight, Lord, as they follow after you, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.